Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with two longtime friends, Teresa Nguyen and Sandy Ho. Teresa and Sandy's energy and love for the disability community is infectious. Teresa is a curriculum developer and trainer at Colorado Employment First, where she specializes in transitioning youth, families, and healthcare. Previously, she was a program officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and served as a subject matter expert for disability and healthcare system initiatives. Teresa is an avid traveler and loves being in nature with her dog, Milo. Sandy Ho is a research project manager at the Community Living Policy Center at the Lurie Institute at Brandeis University, as well as a community organizer in the Boston area focused on disability justice and intersectionality. She is a master of public policy student at the Heller School and the founder of the Disability and Intersectionality Summit. This is a jam-packed episode with Sandy and Teresa sharing their experiences as two badass Asian-American disabled researchers. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guests today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to have two people on who I know you're going to love by the end of this program. I love them in the beginning of the program, but you're going to love them by the end of the program if you don't already know them. We have Sandy Ho and Teresa Nguyen. So I want to start out. We were just before the program talking about food. So I want to start with that. So what about food intrigues you? This is Sandy speaking. Um, my father worked in a restaurant setting, in a Chinese food restaurant setting throughout my childhood. And so food, eating, coming together. I mean, besides the fact that food has a really big place in my culture and the way people interact with one another, um, that was just part of growing up. Like it's just a kind of fond memory from childhood. And, you know, watching my parents and my grandparents share recipes and, and all of that is a lot of fun for me. And as I was saying earlier, um, while I do cook, my favorite part of the cooking experience is the eating part. What do you like to cook? Probably shrimp fried rice. Um, I like pho. My mom's pho. Uh, I like bang me. Sandwiches are my favorite. Yeah, I love it all. Teresa. Food, what does it mean to you? Yes, hi, this is Teresa. Gosh, I think I grew up with a love of food because my mom and dad were highly picky eaters. So my mom is a good cook, which I think gave me a giant advantage and disadvantage to being an annoyingly picky eater. I grew up with a lot of Vietnamese dishes since my parents are both Vietnamese. I wasn't really introduced to like pizza or mac and cheese until I went to kindergarten. And so I, yeah, it was like a whole treat or something to get those foods when I was a child um, because we didn't really grow up with that. Um, so that's like hilarious. I always remember loving, and Sandy's laughing here. Um, I remember loving like Lunchables because that was like, that felt so like such a treat, like such an American treat. 
to bring that instead of like rice and, and whatever meat we were having for lunch. <laughs> but because my mom cooked every meal and because we were spoiled and, um, and had a really amazing cook in the house, I then kind of grew up with that love of cooking and creating good food. We, my mom goes to the store like probably a bazillion times a week. And so I feel like I adopted that out of like not on purpose, but you know, I only go for what I need for that meal. And I don't really try to shop for an entire month's worth of groceries. So that that's like pretty funny to notice that difference too growing up. You know, my husband Jorge is from Mexico. And exactly what you were saying, Teresa, um, they have shopping right nearby yes. and you would not come and buy huge amounts of food. So you didn't have to go for a week or two. You would basically go, they'd make tortillas and we'd go out and get tortillas like two or three times a week and various kinds of fresh fruit and vegetables because you could just go around the corner and there were all these different open markets where you can go and you would go to this one for this and that one for the other and you never switched. And I love going down to Mexico and because food, as you're saying, is such a big thing. I mean, food was a big thing in my parents' house also. So normally we don't start out with talking about food, but I think one of the values of doing that is really to also talk about families and the closeness of families. So if we could just spend like a couple of minutes talking about when you think about your families, what do you see as some of the differences? Like as a, as a woman with a disability, I now kind of look back at um, being aware of how independence is defined in both cultures and how different it is. And that maybe that's why I struggled with the meaning of independence growing up as a child with a disability, as a teenager with a disability. Um, it was really because I was grappling with two cultures, right? The Asian definition of independence is is a little bit more of interdependence, at least from what I have known and grown up with. Everybody does everything for each other, and it's really not anything that has to do with disability. It's it's just a multi-generational kind of model of life for my Vietnamese parents. And so that, I, I think, allowed me to be very supported, but also be very sheltered as a, as a kid with disability. And then, you know, you go to school and you have friends in America and you learn that, you know, the other model of independence is really just how do we sustain ourselves by doing everything that we can to support our individual self without having to rely on people. And so I would say just balancing those two differences has kind of helped me adapt to disability. You know, some days I am super, super independent, love it, embrace it. And then some days I just, I can't be. And I'm okay with that because that's also normalized um, in the Asian community, having to depend on others for things, especially when, when my disability, you know, gets in the way, if I have surgeries or um, if I fracture a bone, I'm definitely not going to be independent. And so it's helped me accept that in a lot of ways and also not feel so hardly like I am a burden to society just because I grew up with kind of both. Thank you. Sandy. This is Sandy speaking. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just continuing with what Teresa had shared, I completely agree. I think that there were definitely similarities in uh, my childhood growing up as well. Like for instance, you know, I am my parents' only child with a disability, and I have two brothers, I'm the middle. 
I'm also the only girl. And so that adds a, another dynamic to my experience for sure. But I think that the ways that I came to understand independence and care and how care is accessed and given were really different between what I experienced in my American public school setting versus caregiving in my family and my relatives um, and in my community where it was very much community-oriented, family-oriented, and you kind of put family first rather than having it be kind of this individualized, like almost feels like a little bit transactional in a way. And I think like that, it made it so I was comfortable expressing the care that I need that I don't think I would have been as comfortable with had I you know, not had the family and culture that um, I do depend on. And I think that this is also something that I remember growing up, you know, my parents would show up at the IEP meeting, the individualized educational planning meeting um, that I had as an elementary school student. And, you know, many times the goals listed on the IEP would be some sort of independence related goal for me. And I think for my parents, that was kind of frightening for them, not not kind of like scary, but it framed an educational experience that seemingly was the goal for me to get away from them and to get out of the house and just to be on my own. And that wasn't particularly my parents or my family's bar or measurement of what they had in mind for me or like what they thought of as educational success. So yeah, I, I think like these two experiences are in parallel with one another, I think, but the ways when they cross paths, it was definitely brought on some confusing moments. I really appreciate this discussion and makes me think that we should do another program that really looks at this whole issue of independence and interdependence, because I don't think the term independent when independent living is really meant for people to do things on their own. Um, but it is definitely a U.S. word and definitely something that, you know, we hear discussed in many other countries, uh, exactly as you're framing it, where the role of the family is intergenerational and no one is looked at as being, quote unquote, independent, whether you have a disability or not. You know, families live together in communities. And um, how did the two of you meet each other? You know, growing up, being the only child with a disability in my family and then predominantly I, I would be only student who had a visible physical disability up until like high school. It was explained to me that I was born with a really rare disability and my disability that I have is osteogenesis imperfecta, brittle bones. And so when I came across the OI community online as like a young tween, it, it was shocking that like all of a sudden, this is not so rare and random as sometimes the adults in my life have made it seem. And so when I came across other folks in the UI community, like Teresa and others, like that, that was definitely for me the kind of on-ramp into the ways that I think our paths initially crossed. And then um, recently we had the opportunity to work together when I invited Lisa to be a part of a project um, that is addressing these like systems and entities that work to support public health data. And 
we're trying to look at ways in which that system can be improved when it comes to reflecting disability population public health data. Sylvan, how old were you when you met Teresa? I don't even know, Teresa. <laughs> Do you remember Teresa? Gosh, I remember, let me think. And again, this is kind of like an internet friendship. And so I remember meeting Sandy or like chatting with Sandy. I want to say 10 years ago, but I could be absolutely wrong. So I would have been 23. Yeah, and, and we're around the same age. So. Mm -hmm. In our like early 20s. Yeah, yes. I find your stories very relevant because both of you have gone into professions that are outside where many people go, disabled and non-disabled people. And you're also uh, both working in the area of health, various aspects, and you're both really valuing research. So if we could for a couple of minutes, I'd really like to talk about research and what you see as the importance of research being inclusive of disability and what you see as some of the barriers that exist from the disability community and the professional community in looking at the value of research. So if you had told me like five years ago that I would be working in a academic research institute, I probably would have laughed and rolled my eyes and been like, no. But here I am proudly as the research project manager of the Community Living Policy Center at Brandeis University. And, you know, it took me some time to understand the relationship and connections and why data and community-driven data is necessary in activism and policy development and, like, how those two are bridged together. And that being said, though, you know, and as somebody who has been in academia for um, about three years now, I also recognize the immense barriers that academia has and kind of, you know, the ways that disabled people can be barred from whether it's furthering their education or career opportunities. Academia isn't the most accessible place or the most accessible field by any means. You know, I think that has been challenging for the disability community to build that pipeline of professionals and uh, folks who do have the tools and education and experiences to do the data analysis, to do the survey development, to, you know, lead research and to be present in asking the questions that our community needs to have asked. Because prior to a lot of this work, it was folks who don't identify or are not from the disability community, you know, thinking up research questions that were not from the community. And so came across in ways that kind of really just overlooked um, our community priorities. Um, and so that's what's so valuable about the Community Living Policy Center is that we do do disability-led and disability-driven research. So that had kind of pushed me over to, to the side a little bit more. And I also know that this is not a commonplace thing that happened and, and it should be happening more. Teresa, could you share with us what, because I know you your role has been a little bit different than Sandy's, and maybe you could talk about why you see research as being valuable and what you see as some of the barriers, uh, both within the disability community in valuing research and uh, what you've maybe had to be doing 
in order to convince other researchers um, who have not necessarily done work in the area of disability that it's relevant? Oh, gosh. So I, I have a public health background, I would say. Personally, I'm, before I even knew what public health was called, I was very interested in the healthcare system, in Medicaid, mainly because I utilized it um, growing up, and, um, and then disability healthcare and how, how those, like, all those systems interplayed. And so I guess there's a word for that, and it fits into public health. I didn't know that. And I got my graduate degree in public health because I was fairly interested in how the gap had existed for healthcare being available and adequate and quality for kids with disabilities, but there is a big gap in the quality and the amount of care available for adults with disabilities. And so I, I went in and, and tried to study kind of community and behavioral health because of that. And I would say that my first job out of graduate school really lined up the, my realization of the importance of data and research in the disability community. I was kind of the community liaison and engagement person for our uh, state Medicaid office in Colorado on a specific bill pertaining to the Money Follows the Person program. So program dedicated to transition individuals out of institutions back into the community. And we were, I think, on year two of five in proving that we had the data to sustain this financial program that would help folks move back into the community. And so that's kind of when my research hat like kicked in and I was like, okay, we need numbers to show. There's no way we're just going to be able to prove that this is sustainable through people wanting to do the right thing. We need numbers and we need facts. And so I think that was kind of the first demonstration was how do I tell the story of the importance and the passion behind nursing home transitions into the community but how do I put numbers in it so that policymakers who don't understand this passion, how can they find it relevant? And so that was kind of my first thing. And then I kind of fell in love after that in the research and policy arena. So that kind of defined my uh, path moving forward. And I think a barrier in folks with disabilities buying into research is maybe the medical model having a heavily a heavy influence on some of the research and data collected. Um, I think folks with disabilities are pretty distrusting of medical anything because sometimes medical providers don't have the best interest for people with disabilities in minds um, when, we're, when they're providing medical care. So what's to say that the research collected is not only going to benefit them and not us? So I think the distrust is a barrier to, to folks buying into disability research data and research. A barrier for researchers trying to study, you know, disability and, and putting some numbers is that I, like Sandy said, we don't have enough of our community in the field. And one of the things that, you know, when, when data collectors go out and collect qualitative or quantitative data, we learn that when it's collecting data on a community that we're not familiar with, there is this whole trust building process that's missing. And so I think that's why there's been an increased call to folks who belong in the community who become researchers and become hired into these big projects. But that hasn't always been the case and nobody has ever prioritized that as having their own community member conduct the research 
in a trustworthy way. Either of you have anyone who like gave you guidance about moving into these fields that you're studying? Because your degree, Sandy's your master's is going to be in public policy and Teresa is you have an MPH? Yes. And I have an MPH also. Did either of you get counseling which led you to move in these fields? I had an amazing support system and, and peer mentors and now we're now colleagues. So it's it's been an amazing path. But my mentorship started out as um, when I was just a little kid patient in my uh, doctor's office. And she was really invested in what I wanted to do growing up. And I didn't, again, tease out public health. I just told her what I was interested in. But she was the one who helped me define that public health arena and area and really helped me understand what a graduate degree would look like for me, what kind of jobs would it get for me or help me get, and what kind of work I would be able to enjoy doing. And she connected me to other awesome, really like powerful lady mentors in Colorado who were in the public health track as well. And so I felt really heavily supported and in a funny way, like through a medical setting, which I think is really rare. But now we work together on some projects and uh, we are both colleagues at the Children's Hospital of Colorado. And it's, it's really exciting to see kind of it come to full circle. She was mentoring me and now she's, you know, ready to kind of pass on the torch in this medical system we're trying to create in Colorado. And Sandy. When I think about my mentors in this field, I think about Alice Wong. So what a lot of folks may not realize um, is that prior to the Community Living Policy Center being at Brandeis University, it was at UCSF and under the directorship of Dr. Steve Kay and Alice Wong was at the CLPC, kind of in the similar role that I'm currently at. And what's interesting is that I met Alice like years ago, but it wasn't until like the way my career just kind of naturally unfolded into this position at the CLPC, where we really started talking about what is it like to balance that line between researcher and activist and the responsibilities of that. And, you know, one of the things that really got me intrigued into research that I didn't realize was a possibility prior to this. Like when I think about public health research or disability policy research, my mind usually would go to like just endless data tables and like Excel sheets of just numbers. And I'm not a quant person at all, but Alice, her thing was qualitative data and listening to people's stories and interviews and doing the analysis of what people were saying. And that was fascinating to me. And that has actually been most of my role in research projects at Lurie Institute and the Community Living Policy Center now. So I think about Alice, I think about Dr. Monica Mitra, the director of the Lurie Institute, as a, a woman of color um, in this position and in the the position that she has. Um, I, I watch and admire her the way that um, she uplifts other folks, um, whether it's PhD students, whether it's master's students. You know, we have an undergraduate mentoring uh, fellowship program at Lurie Institute, and she is incredibly generous with her time and, you know, is willing to take risks on folks like myself, where, right, like, not having any kind of academic policy 
research background and and being invited to um, join the Learning Institute team three years ago like that. I think that is the kind of leadership that I look to and am drawn to that also makes me really hopeful for the field as well that um, we are kind of changing the ways things have been done and the ways things have been perceived um, in the past. Did both of you go to integrated educational programs from the beginning? Um, this is Teresa. I was not integrated until kindergarten. So I attended preschool in a school for people with disabilities. From what I remember, um, most of my classmates were nonverbal. I later on learned from my parents that it was suggested to put me in a non-integrated school program from a caseworker. And, you know, my parents really only could do their best. They barely were integrating with the American culture um, by the time I was, you know, three or four years old. And I was their firstborn. And so that was, you know, quite the shock to come to America, learn this whole new culture, and then have a baby with OI, osteogenesis imperfecta, and having to navigate the healthcare system um, as immigrants. So they had quite the shocker coming to them. And so they, they listened to a lot of things that providers said. This was one of them to put me in a non-integrated school. And they learned quickly from my own complaints that I really wasn't around anyone else, but um, people who didn't talk to me in class. And I also told them I was not learning. I wasn't being challenged. I really wanted to learn how to read, how to count, how to speak English. So they learned really quick. So not at the very beginning, Judy. But basically in kindergarten forward, yeah, you were in integrated classes. And Sandy, what about you? As I mentioned earlier, I do have an older brother who's non-disabled. And so we are four years apart. And so I just started in a non-integrated school setting for preschool. And that was a part of receiving early intervention services. And that was a referral from, that my parents got. And so I went to a preschool that I think was affiliated with what was then called the Mass Hospital School. It's under a completely different name now um, that I'm forgetting. And then when it came time to consider kindergarten and elementary school options, my parents kind of talked with physicians and, and doctors and specialists about whether or not there were any reasons for why I shouldn't be in an integrated school setting. And there weren't really that many, particularly because my family uh, was also really privileged and fortunate to have access to the Section 8 housing program in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a middle to upper middle income city um, with great schools. And so we knew that going in that they would be able to provide the services that I need, whether that was speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. And of course, the benefit of that is a lot of the work that Judy was a part of in, in her disability rights activism and the ADA and the IGEA that enabled that to happen. So yeah, so since kindergarten, I, I was in uh, an integrated setting. How did you discover the disability community? So my on-ramp into the disability community and I want to clarify that that is beyond just like the services that we would get, right? Like meaningful community that like we felt like we really belonged was much later than I wish it had been. But um, it was 
when I started working for Easter Seals, Massachusetts Thrive Mentoring Program, which was at the time the first mentoring program in the state for disabled young women to be mentored by older women with disabilities in the state. So traditionally, I think many youth programs that work with uh, young people with disabilities pair them up with non-disabled adults. And so that was why this was different. And it was also focused on the identity of being a young woman. And so being the program coordinator of that was exciting because I was at the time in my early 20s and kind of trying to come into my own being of disability identity and being a disabled woman and figuring all of that out. So there was that. And then I am a reader, but always been that kind of stereotypical bookworm of a disabled kid. But I read books, right, by Harlan Russo, Timmy Lincoln, Corbett. Yeah, and so that was kind of my exposure. And Teresa? Um, I would say it's similar to Sandy's. That was later, much later than I had hoped for that to happen. And it was after actually becoming roommates with um, another fellow friend with osteogenesis and perfecta. She was 10 years older than me. And so she was already integrated and was like hurrying me up. And she was like, you need to hurry on up and meet the community. And I was just in college, just like, I'll meet them when I meet them. Um, but she invited me to all the meetings, all the advocacy meetings. She was a part of many councils in Colorado. Um, a big one that was actually when I was introduced to like the University Centers on Excellence and Developmental Disabilities or the USADs um, was because she had been a member for several years and was like, just come to this meeting. And then um, I would say individually, like I became more intrigued as I did my first disability exchange program in Costa Rica through Mobility International USA. Um, and it was my first time traveling out of the country alone and also with a variety of different folks with different disabilities. And we were, it was kind of the first time for all of us. So we bonded over that and kind of the shared independence or gained independence that we had learned over the trip. But because we were in a different country, we were all forced to kind of really get deep with disability and who needs what, who wants what, whose preferences are what, and how can we help each other out? Because navigating a new country with a disability is hard. It's hard without a disability. But that was when I realized, man, we're really cool. We're kind of badasses. So mentorship, you know, what I find interesting about this discussion is you both entered education as disabled students in a non-disability community. My experience was entering it only with disabled students and then gradually entering into it with non-disabled students. And the issue of mentorship, I think, is really important. So are you experiencing people reaching out to you and asking you to be their mentors? Teresa. I would say yes and no. Like, I mean, indirectly, I find a lot of that more. You know, I don't even know if I reached out to somebody and was like, can you mentor me? But I think that it has happened really naturally, especially around very nuanced topics that maybe is not out. I think we have a lot of disability representation more than 
say the 80s or the 90s about certain things in disability, right? Like disability rights, education. But nobody talks about like romance or nobody talks about like the deep rooted like things that we have to figure out for independent living. So I, I think that's what I think I start to, again, try to build that trust with younger folks who are like me so that we can be able to talk about that because I didn't have that growing up. And so I think I look for mentorship, but I also think it just comes to me as well. Sandy. Hey, this is Sandy speaking. Yeah, you know, one thing that I've learned over the years about mentorship is that it's a two-way street, right? And I think that's something people can sometimes forget is that when seeking out mentorships, I'm learning just as much from, say, the undergraduate fellows who are being mentored by researchers at Lurie Institute as much as they are hopefully learning about research from us, we are learning from the younger generations about cross-movement solidarity. We're learning from younger generations about different ways to get messaging across. Like I am forever in admiration of the folks who are on TikTok. Like I just don't understand, but the way that they have been able to wield power has been awesome. And you know, other ways in which mentorship has allowed other ways of doing and thinking um, into my life um, has been really helpful just for my own activism but also research process as well and when I think about mentorship though in terms of activism for instance the disability and intersectionality summit often we have young folks who apply to the conference who may not be ready yet necessarily to present, but we also want to support them in their own journey and learning. And so what we have tried to do sometimes is connect them with other young people or other folks in the movement who are working on similar areas or similar issues that they are interested in and encouraging them to, you know, apply next year or something. And there are also young people who have applied to the to the conference where we help coach them through their presentations. So in that way, there's mentorship happening in like just event organizing. But yeah, again, I I think that the way that we understand mentorship is also just another form of community building. That's the way I see it. So Sandy, you were mentioning the Disability Intersectionality Summit, um, and it's going to be another one this year. Why is this important and who can participate? So the Disability Intersectionality Summit, DIS, or DIS for short, started in 2016 with a group of disabled activists from across the country. And we wanted to envision a community space that was for us, by us, but specifically disabled people of color, trans, LGBTQ, BIPOC, and folks who often don't necessarily have a platform or a microphone or have the opportunity to present. And, and when I say present, I mean, ours is a space where we want folks to present on things that they are passionate about, things that they want to have our community learn from or, or get excited about, not necessarily the latest policy priority or, you know, breaking news or a hot button issue. And I think that's what kind of sets this space apart. Um, we're also not an academic conference. So this is really a community space 
where all the presenters and all the organizers are disabled, but the audience, it's a community, it's open to the public. We, for obvious reasons, this year are doing things all online, and then we upload the videos to YouTube. And this is important because people who are disabled and living at the margins of society, who experience multiple systems of oppression, are still experiencing inequities that you know we are not as a society or as a community really addressing in ways that call into question who has power, who has access, what is equitable and what is just. And I think that while we are working towards and pushing for policy and equality, we're sometimes forgetting the ways that there's always going to be folks who fall through the cracks, who fall through the margins. And if we are truly to be an inclusive and equitable society, then all of us need to experience liberation. So that's why this space is important to me. And we'll be putting information up so people who want to uh, join can look at what they need to do to register. So I have one more question and it'll be very quick. Okay, so what brings you joy, Sandy? Talking with people. So this is gonna sound really corny, especially because I'm also, I think, quote unquote, known in the community for being a little bit more of an introvert. Um, I'm not the loudest person on Twitter or in person for by any means. So over the summers, our office doesn't have work days uh, on Fridays. And so what I've done instead is spend my Friday just like reaching out to people on Twitter or folks who I've gotten emails from, but generally like don't have time during the rest of the year, like really talk with them and get to know them better. I think so often we spend our time in the community working and, and advocating and, and being activists that we forget that we are also folks in the community who have our own passions and joys. Um, and so getting to know people just on that level is exciting to me. Thank you. Teresa, what brings you joy? Gosh, so many things. I love connecting with others. I think that is a big um, factor in joy for me. I love being outside and getting a little bit of alone time. I think many people with disabilities can relate that our time is stretched so thin in so many different directions. We're being advocates and activists when we don't even know we're doing it. Um, and it's tiring. So I like just having some time to myself, whether that's like being outside or cooking or reading a book, just some me time. So it brings me joy. Where did you recently go? I recently went to Hawaii. Asking somebody about Teresa and she's like, she's in Hawaii. <laughs> was it? It was wonderful. Talk about some really dedicated me time. It was, it was great. I love the beach. I love the water. I don't know why I'm in Colorado and settled here for now, but I love the water. So basically just spent a lot of my time with my feet in the water and doing a lot of nothing. I want to thank you both. This is a great program. I've learned much from you. I'm sure the audience has also. And we need to continue to follow you for all the great work that you continue to do. So thank you both very much. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Teresa. You've been tuning into The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guests were Teresa Nguyen and Sandy Ho. 
Be sure to follow Teresa on Instagram at Teresa.grams and follow Sandy on Twitter at NotYourAverageHo101, spelled at NotYourAvGHO101. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontaro, and Huaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. You may not realize I love you.